Beyond the, Beyond the Headlines. This is World Insight. Hello and welcome to World Insight with me, Tian Wei. This program is coming to you from Davos on the sideline of the 54th World Economic Forum Annual Meeting. China has been closely interacting with the world in recent years, especially on economic activities, the communication strength and cross-border cooperation that benefited all players. In Recharging Growth in China, a joint presentation of CGTN and World Economic Forum, experts, scholars, as well as insiders share their insights on high-quality development and how to boost the long-term consumption in China. You don't have to have been to China hundreds of times over, the, over 40 years to conclude that the Chinese consumer is the best guarantor of China's economic future. Well, I think the growth is 5.2%. It's not too bad. It showed the resilience of China's economy. If you go down to the details, you will say the consumption actually increased 6.1%. Uh, it's quite strong. During the World Economic Forum annual meeting this year, I am bringing to you exclusive interviews with political and economic leaders, such as Pakistani Prime Minister and the global president of PricewaterhouseCoopers. As they say it in China, that when China grows, everyone grows. So when China benefits, everyone benefits. The Chinese model, the best part about that is it believes in economic intervention. It believes in the win-win situation. It believes in mutual coordination and cooperation. China has gone through the biggest change. And as a result, their CEOs are much more attuned to the need for change. So it's not like we're resting on complacency. And that's a good thing because they recognize it in taking action compared to those that don't even recognize the need for change. Now, for today, let's meet Bill Gates, the co-chair of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the founder of Breakthrough Energy. The most pressing problems are inadequate public health systems in the world, the growing gap between the global north and global south, the rich and the poor, and breakneck technology advances, to name a few. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has been dedicated to narrowing the gap in healthcare and more for a more equitable world. Let's listen to my conversation with Bill Gates on the sideline of the World Economic Forum this year. Bill, it's such a pleasure to see you here in Davos. I know you've been carrying the backpack with you throughout the day. Is it heavy? Oh, no. It's yeah. uh, just showing people some of the great new tools, very low-cost tools that uh, can improve health, particularly in, in poor countries. Mm. Your team already brought some of them out of the pocket. So maybe you can tell us what these are and why they are crucial. Uh, well, the first one here is a vaccine. Uh, this is called HPV vaccine. Uh, uh, these are made uh, in China, India, and the US uh, with partners. We're getting the cost down. And we've proven that a single dose can protect women from cervical cancer. Mm -hmm. Today, most women don't get this vaccine, uh, but we should get it to all the women in the world. Uh, and because we proved that a single dose is enough, uh, that's very economic to do. Timeline to do this? Uh, well, uh, it's under manufacture now. Uh, we're, we've started to roll it out. The regulatory approval's all there. Uh, and, and so, you know, over the next several years, we just have to get that coverage up. You're not afraid that people would accuse you about the vaccines and the related issues? Well, it's unfortunate that there's some confusion about, you know, the most miraculous health tool ever. Uh, vaccine hesitancy has always been a bit of a problem. The pandemic, it went up, but, you know, now we're trying to get the word out. 
uh, that you know you want to protect your kid from measles or your daughter from cervical cancer. Uh, vaccines are the main reason we've been able to cut uh, child to death. Yeah. Uh, which is over 10 million at the turn of the century, mm -hmm. down now to about 5 million. So vaccines are, are miraculous, uh, and we have a lot of partners in China who help us with that work. Will Common Sense come back soon? You know, it's person by person. Uh, they have to hear from people they trust uh, that, um, you know, they they should be protecting their child. I would love to talk about trust a bit later. That's an important topic. Tell me more about this. Yeah, so this one's... Uh, kind of uh, amazing because historically only in rich countries would you get this ultrasound scan. The machine was expensive and training the technician was expensive. Mm -hmm. Now by using very cheap hardware and AI software, we can take a woman who's pregnant and see is there any challenges and so she can know does she have to go to a medical center to do the delivery or uh, will it be a unchallenging uh, delivery? And that can save almost half of the lives if you know in advance mm -hmm. who needs the special treatment. So it's a wonderful example of uh, advanced AI, but on behalf of equity. How expensive is this? Uh, the actual hardware is about $1,000, and that'll even come down. Uh, we have a number of partners in China. We have Philips, which is in Europe, uh, that'll be making this. Because a single device can be used thousands and thousands right. of times, the cost per delivery is less than a dollar. All right. Well, we see all these latest developments. Congratulations. You need to carry the bag. <laughs> More than just today, right? Having said that, though, money is an important issue. $8.4 billion, that is the latest budget you have for the foundation for this year, increased compared to last year, even more than year before. But Will this money be used smartly, given the fact that the budget of healthcare, especially for common folks, really have been going down as a result of pandemic and economic situations, Bill? Well, the foundation funds a lot of invention of new tools, like the HPV vaccine or the ultrasound. And then we, with partners, fund delivery. Uh, you know, we're very careful to make sure our money is very high impact. But the challenge we have today... And you're very involved in that. Oh, sure. Uh, the um, challenge is that the amount of money that goes to poor countries, uh, the aid money or even the cost of loans that they take, uh, are working against them. And so they have to be even more effective, prioritize the primary health care, prioritize vaccination, or this decline in deaths that we've seen mm -hmm. Uh, where our goal is to get from that five million down to two and a half million. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, we wanted to get there by 2030. Uh, the pandemic and the financial issues mean we won't get there by 2030, but the sooner the better. And by keeping global health visible, uh, by increasing overall aid budgets so they can handle new things uh, and still uh, do things like buying vaccines, then we can maintain that progress. But it, it means we have to talk about global health and have it be uh, top of mind of improving lives all over the world. I'm afraid it's not just about talking about the global health, isn't it? If you look at what people are discussing within our economies, they're looking at their own priorities, oh, knowing that there are global challenges they need to handle together. But when it comes to priorities to, for action, it seems that the global challenge is always going to the back 
of the list. So how do you see this kind of thing going on, especially between the so-called Global North and Global South? Well, we need to build on the successes we've had. We need to make people aware that you know, you're saving lives for very little money as you save those lives, uh, you know, those countries over time become self-sufficient. But, you know, whether it's agriculture or health, uh, you need to help them make that bootstrap. Uh, you know, China is a great example of a country that uh, is now very self-sufficient and helping other countries. And the R&D budgets in China that uh, can uh, develop new vaccines, develop better seeds, better livestock genetics. Uh, those things can help China and uh, help uh, the countries that aren't as far along as China is, including those in Africa. And that's why the Gates Foundation has a uh, very strong office uh, in China and, and builds partnerships with the governments and all the companies there. You've been interacting with different generations of Chinese leaders. Uh, even during recent years when the geopolitics becomes such a challenge, what is your takeaway from the conversations and the logic behind the conversations? How do you see a China, as some say, in transition? Well, the China in 1980 uh, was uh, poorer actually than India. And so both in China itself and the, and the world benefiting from China, you know, we were at a low point. Today, China's making you know, inexpensive products that benefit the world. Uh, the health uh, statistics in China have improved very uh, dramatically. Uh, I never did meet Deng Xiaoping, but every leader since then, I've had an opportunity to sit and talk to and uh, you know, talk about common goals like uh, reducing TB. Uh, China's making the most progress, uh, more a partner in helping with this, reducing TB in China and then making uh, the tools uh, that can go help other countries as well. So, you know, there's a lot of win-win things, uh, whether it's between Gates Foundation and China or even uh, China and other countries. Uh, you mean U.S.? Oh yeah, including the U.S., uh -huh. you know, working together on climate innovation, uh, uh, all of these different health challenges. Uh, and so, you know, the more the relationship can be about the win-win, you know, I think the better off we all are. Can we navigate this year? Uh, it's challenging, you know, as you have various wars breaking out, people take different positions. Elections going on. Uh, you know, elections, a lot of, you know, tough talk may come out of that, but I'm hopeful. Uh, you know, we've, we've come a long ways. Uh, and we owe it to the Global South to have levels of cooperation that can lift them up uh, to the levels that we almost take for granted. About AI, we see a lot of uh, great discussions going on regarding the AI governance vis-a-vis -vis the speed of development of the technologies, if we really know how fast the technology is developing. How do you see the real nature and the stage of discussion so far about this? Well, AI's been able to read and write uh, is a very new thing. That was uh, Microsoft working with OpenAI with ChatGPT4. It was the first time it was good enough that you could say it's a, a help for white-collar jobs. So things like technical support or programming or uh, sales calls, it now can drive productivity. And we need to let that get out in the economy, uh, make sure that it's accurate, particularly if it's doing things like giving health advice. 
you know, get it into the education system so students have an individual tutor uh, that knows about their state of knowledge. And although we need to educate the, the government people, uh, it's only as it rolls out that you'll see, okay, where is it good and should be accelerated and where are the challenges? Like, you know, if, is a bad guy using it for a cyber attack? So you need an even better AI that helps you do cyber defense. Governance is usually lagging behind the real technology development. You know that so well. Meanwhile, we also see people are making efforts in order to have some kind of governance. Your earlier conversation with some of the tech entrepreneurs shows that. You're also somewhat doing the example of nuclear uh, uh, issue, how that was managed earlier, decades ago. Do you think this is comparable at all? Well, mankind has had challenges when we have powerful technologies. Uh, you know, we can make, uh, bi in biology, we mostly improve human health, but, you know, we have to worry that somebody would use that to create a bioweapon, you know, just like we worry about nuclear weapons. We've, you know, done a good job uh, so far with nuclear weapons. We still have to be vigilant to make sure that they never get used. And I feel confident with AI that, you know, the same type of dialogue, the same type of, uh, you know, understanding of what the good uses are and, and accelerating those will make sure it's a net benefit. The meeting this time about trust. We know that is the toughest issue, rebuilding trust. Uh, to you, uh, how do you articulate that on the personal level? And also, how do you articulate that on the issues that you are passionate about? Well, we're, we're working on common goals, you know, making women sure women survive childbirth, making sure kids have nutrition, that really brings us together. Uh, and all the rich countries, but particularly uh, China and the U.S., have a lot to bring to that. You know, big R&D budgets uh, and ways they can help. In areas like climate, you know, we want uh, innovation from both the countries to come together to have very low cost. You know, we can adopt green technologies as they are less and less expensive. And so both countries uh, uh, really have both a responsibility and an opportunity to contribute to that. So dialogue's important. Um, the pandemic uh, reduced the amount of dialogue quite dramatically. People weren't traveling. You know, so I, uh, as soon as I could, uh, went, went back to China and, and spoke to uh, not just President Xi, but all our, our partners there. And so as, as that kind of discussion resumes, I'm hopeful that we'll have more of the win-win type engagement. Mm -hmm. Bill, such a pleasure to see you. Thank you for your generosity of time. Thank you. Looking forward to seeing you in China again. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much, sir. Amid the snow-capped mountains, they come together to rebuild trust in a fractured world. I am here too bringing to you all the discussions about the world's intertwined challenges, and more importantly, reporting on efforts to find solutions, among which China is a critical player. Join me for key updates and exclusive interviews from Davos at the World Economic Forum's annual meeting. The state of the Chinese economy is one of the most anticipated topics here in Davos this year. For a better understanding of China's economy and the interactions between China and the United States in recent months, we talked to Ray Dalio, the founder of asset management firm Bridgewater. 
Let's listen in. Ray, what a pleasure to see you. So good to see you again. One of the times for the Chinese Premier to interact with the OD international community, including 800 global CEOs, I really wonder what is uh, the nature of curiosity these days from the business community about China, for example, reflected in your work? Of course, there's been changes in China in a way where um, the business community is concerned about the conflict between the United States and China. And I would say that last March it reached its worst point. Uh, that was a terrible, terrible time. And it's made improvements since then. In other words, both sides recognizing that a terrible economic war or a terrible military war would be terrible. <laughs> and so that there is now a better amount of talking. And I think it'll be important for the world to hear him. And then also um, to continue to paint the picture of China's role in the world as a um, as a peaceful, uh, productive party in the world. Mm, do you think people will be convinced? I think actions take uh, actions will be important over a period of time. People, I think, sometimes come with their stereotypes. They don't know China well. I've been lucky. I've been going since 1984, so I know China pretty well. Uh, but still, there are questions. So I think over a period of time, it's more a matter of the actions that are taken. Now. You hosted earlier an interaction with Mr. Liu Jianchao, uh, one of the uh, very prominent Chinese ministers of the Chinese Communist Party. And I'm sure you have, with that closed-door session, interacted about Chinese diplomacy, the goals of diplomacy, vis-a-vis -vis economic development. Tell me more about what is the takeaway from that meeting. How is it interact with what you had just explained to me and analyzed about U.S.-China. Uh, the main thing that he and I were both hoping to accomplish is to create a mutual understanding. That doesn't mean an agreement about what should be, but to try to eliminate misunderstandings because they're very dangerous. And um, he was remarkable in being able to be so open. He said, Give me your toughest questions, whatever they might be. Let's discuss any of them. And he was really remarkable in having those exchanges. Uh, I think there, there are questions. There, they may seem impolite. But if, uh, the United States, if he asks the United States, how could we trust in the stability of our relationship when the politics is so volatile? Mm -hmm. Okay, questions that, and then back and forth in terms of those delicate questions. That is um, really bringing about an understanding. So uh, that was something I was very, very pleased to see. He made a big impression in the United States. Quality communications, so crucial these days. Seeing it through the other's eyes. Not seeing it through one's own eyes, which could be biased. And then agreeing that there are certain terrible things that must not happen. What might be your concern for the next biggest challenge as you see today? Well, uh, as I say, when I combine the risk of the internal conflict in the United States with the risk of the external conflict, um, that opens all sorts of types of economic 
uh, risks as well as political. The costs of war, the United States being overextended in some places, um, and how that works out. Spreading of war in the Middle East, spreading of war in other places that create great disruptions. Um, and then, of course, we have this climate issue, which is a bit, it's going to be very costly. If you just spent the money it's on it, estimated $5 trillion a year, 5% of world GDP, I think in 24, it's, it's that, uh, that confluence. And then red lines. We're so close to red lines. Let's say if we were to take the Taiwan issue, okay, we're very close to red lines with the Taiwan issue. We're close to red lines in a number of areas. What does the chip war look like? How do sanctions work? All of those. So it's dangerously close to those red lines. I think wisdom will prevail, but this is an environment where accidents also could happen. Mm. What would be the best advice? Yeah, the mutual understanding and, and, and being realistic. You know, Chinese concept of war, since the art of war was written, is that you should never win a war through military fighting because that's so painful and you're, you must not have been clever enough to win the war through military destructive. I would say if we take that kind of war or if we take a terrible economic war and we realize that we should be clever to be able to compete mm -hmm. intensely. Technology is an interesting factor. Uh, as we know, this year's uh, annual meeting focused so much on artificial intelligence. This is also a competition we see between China and the United States. Now, how do you see these uh, technology factors, especially artificial intelligence, likely to play here? On the one hand, we already see the two sides come up with some kind of interactions, discussing uh, governance issue regarding to artificial intelligence. On the other hand, uh, we are likely to see a competition uh, between the two sides already taking place. So how do you see this mixed picture is going to also contribute to reshape what you just described? Well, throughout history, we've seen whoever wins the technology war wins the economic war and wins, wins the military war. So from both sides, it's very, very important that they do the best to win. They also recognize the threats that might come from those technologies. So in an ideal world, you'd have cooperation, but that, re that reality prevails. So, um, so now what you're seeing is that a, a, a chess game playing. Yes. What technology and who and will I prevent it and what will I mean for the countries that are in between? Will they be able to use it and what sanctions will develop and so on? And then how do they get around those sanctions? And then so you see it where, let's say, Chinese companies will then go set up uh, companies that are not Chinese companies, not run by Chinese, um, and then they'll compete and so on. I think in this world today, it's very difficult to control all of those things. But that's the nature of what the war is like. Mm -hmm. Now, the technology also related to people's uh, understanding of each other, because as we know, rhetorics and narratives goes with these echo chambers totally uh, generalized, uh, uh, totally energized by new technologies. How, how do you see these elements once again working in the overall discussion. But I, I think that that brings us back to this energy of entrepreneurship. 
Okay, it's man's inventiveness, mm -hmm. right? Educate your people well, make them civil, and let Literacy. them work well together and enable them with capital so that that enables them to be creative and be effective. Yeah. And so I think we come down to those basic fundamentals for both countries. Those are the elements of competition that matter the most. And also, what has been China's biggest contribution to the world? I think the greatest contribution in the world, without a doubt, was the efficient production of um, a, a, lot of, um, a lot of things that um, created incomes for people who enjoyed the benefits of those incomes and also created products which were cost effective. Um, so that was the contribution. And that's all the time we have for today. If you'd like to know more, search World Inside on the YouTube channel. You can also find us on X and Facebook. I'm Tian Wei on behalf of my team here in Davos and back in Beijing. Thank you for being with us. <laughs>